Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. We come to question 28 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Well, we are presently studying the life of Christ, which can be divided into two stages, Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. Last week we said that the humiliation of Christ includes everything from his birth up to and through his death and burial. And therefore, Christ's exaltation includes everything from his resurrection onward. The whole purpose of Christ's humiliation was to show the human race the way back to God. Every man must die. Every person will suffer. But through Jesus Christ, our death and our suffering is placed in a much bigger context that we call eternity. The hope of the gospel is that humiliation is not where the story ends. For the Christian, death marks the beginning of an even more glorious and happy life. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that Paul is referring to here is the glory of the resurrected state. And the fact that Christ's humiliation was followed by a resurrection and ascension into glory is the basis for our hope that we too shall be exalted after we are humiliated. When Jesus told his disciples to follow him, this following included walking through the valley of the shadow of death and then coming out resurrected on the other side. When you chose to walk with Jesus, when you choose to walk with Jesus, you are choosing a life that is hard. It is a life of difficulty. It is a life of war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But if you walk with Jesus all the way, those days of difficulty, those thorns in your side, will be transformed into a crown of glory that never fades, which your heavenly Father will lovingly place upon your head. It is this prize and this calling that made the Apostle Paul to say at the very end of his life, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So do you love the appearing of Christ and his coming into the world? Do you look with hope to his final coming in judgment at the end of the world? If so, then Christ's exaltation is a picture of your future. To contemplate this truth should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord.
Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. I think the edge of the cold is going away. Um, I was thinking as we got here this morning that there are churches that certainly um, we lament about that have plenty of heat but very little light in them. But I thank God that we not only have heat and we are the source of that heat at the moment, but we also have light, and that is such a that is that is the important thing. As the days shorten and the nights grow colder, Christians embrace God's promise of light. Advent heralds the beginning of the church calendar year and begins on the Sunday between November 27th and December 3rd. The word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus. The word means coming, approach, or arrival. Advent is also a translation of the Greek parousia. This word is familiar to many of us and is a word historically used in the church to signify Christ's second coming. The church collectively waits with hope-filled anticipation for arrival, for Advent, of Christ in our world, the one born in the flesh and whose presence is with us both both now and eternally. So we are in the middle of this Advent season, and it is a good thing to reflect and meditate upon the work of God and the redemption of sinful man, a work that was revealed in the very first messianic prophecy in the story of the promises of God, foretold by his prophets and the promise fulfilled in the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ. This worshipful celebration blends in with our ongoing Advent, the anticipation of the second coming of Christ in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Now imagine that you were to conceive the plan of redemption and then execute it. Divorce yourself from all knowledge you have in God except for the fact that he is holy and righteous, and as sinners we are estranged from him. What would your story of redemption look like? How long would it be in the making? Who would be the hero of of the plan or the story? How would the characters of your story be portrayed? Would the story be fulfilled using flawed characters? Would your story be obvious and easy to understand for everyone? And would virtually every expectation not be met? After reading Isaiah 53, you can see what point I am about to make this morning. Probably also from the title of the sermon. We didn't see this coming. Being Christians, we would find it difficult to conceive of the plan of redemption any other way than how God ordained it. Not so for a different group who still await the Messiah. I took this, uh, this a short excerpt here from an article uh, from a website called uh, Judaism 101. It was convenient for me. But I think it's in keeping with 
um, what we, uh, how I understand it anyway, the Mashiach or the Messiah will be a great political leader, descended from King David. The Mashiach is often referred to as Mashiach ben David, the Messiah, son of David. He will be a well versed. He will be well versed in Jewish law, and observant of his commandments. He will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. He will be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But, all, but, but above all, he will be a human being, not a god, demigod, or other supernatural being. It has been said that in every generation, a person is born with the potential to be the Mashiach. If the time is right for the messianic age within that person's lifetime, then that person will be the Mashiach. But if that person dies before he completes the mission of the Mashiach, then that person is not. The Mashiach is not the Messiah. The end of the quote from the article. Now, the questions I posed a little just a couple minutes ago about how would you write the story and what would your story look like with some of what is being said here in this excerpt, from Judaism 101, would that be part of how our story might look if we were to author it? And after doing a bit of research on Isaiah 53 concerning a Jewish interpretation, my understanding is that many Jews are not very enamored with the passage here of this servant song, this fourth servant song in the prophet Isaiah's book, and gloss very quickly over it. They attribute it as referring to the nation of Israel, or they just plain avoid it. It doesn't reflect their expectation of what the Messiah would or even should be. When we consider the history of redemption, we know with certainty that God left nothing to chance. There was or is no dependence upon anyone or anything other than himself to plan and execute our redemption. As God proclaimed through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 12, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. But God, as the author of Holy Scriptures, inspired the prophets to set forth the truth carefully and accurately, for nothing short of absolute accuracy will suffice in the fulfillment of all he spoke. Concerning the Son, he promised to send into the world. The key to all messianic prophecy, I've heard said, is found hanging at the front door of the Bible. And the, as strange as it may be, this key was given by God to that old serpent, the devil. And we are, it's a passage we are all very familiar with. And if not, you should be familiar with it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the prophecy goes like this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now in Christian circles, what do we commonly refer to um, Genesis three fifteen as? Do we remember? What's it called? Anybody? The, pro the proto-evangelium, right? derived from two Greek words, protos meaning first, and evangelion or gelion meaning gospel or good news. This promise 
this Proto-Evangelium, stated directly to the serpent and witnessed by our first parents, contains the gospel in all its glory. Think of a mature and mighty oak containing such a small acorn. And like this image, this promise from Almighty God heralds the coming of a future Redeemer who will strike not a mortal blow, but the mortal blow upon the enemies of God and even upon death itself. From this point on, the chain of promises and prophecies concerning the seed of the woman lengthens until it ends in the birth of Jesus, who was not only the seed of the woman, but also referred to as the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Let's look at, so we hear that in Genesis uh, 3.15, this forecast, this prophecy, and in Matthew 1.18 it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this, on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And in Genesis chapter 7, the forecast, Then the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And Paul, thinking about this, writing in Galatians 3, verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And in 2 Samuel seven twelve, speaking of uh, King David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of the bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And again, back to <clears throat> excuse me, the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, verses 1 and verse 3, says, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh with the first messianic prophecy concerning the seed of the woman the first messianic prophecy in the Bible there began a long path leading to the fulfillment of the promised seed the prophecy of God concerning the seed of the woman is encompassed encompasses all things concerning the coming and arrival of Jesus the Messiah. His virgin birth, his vicarious sufferings, you shall bruise his heel. And his complete and eventual dominion over Satan in all his works, he shall bruise your head, which is, again, the mortal wound. One more time with Jeremiah 1.12, because it's just so powerful and it's so encouraging, uplifting, and it and it should fill us always. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Think about how awesome this is, especially when we consider the vigorous and constant attempts by the enemy to destroy the prophesied seed. Satan seems to have come close. Through the exceeding sinfulness of men to the extent that God would send universal judgment in the form of the flood. We see it in the intended massacre of the Jewish nation, nation at the instigation of Haman, a vile enemy of the Jews. Or at the slaughter of the innocents as Herod seeks to murder the promised seed, the infant Jesus. And so many other instances in the Bible which point to the war against the kingdom of God. So God made a promise. And as I alluded to earlier, there were obviously preconceived notions as to how the seed would present how this promise would be fulfilled. 
a man of great stature who would naturally attract people to follow him, who would be a political mastermind overcoming the Roman legions and distinguishing Israel as the dominant empire on earth. But let's consider the scripture from Isaiah 53. So I guess, I guess that was my introduction, okay. <laughs> so anyway, let's consider the scripture, the, five, the four or five verses from Isaiah 53, being uh, the fourth servant song that we read in that, in that book. The key themes in Isaiah is that God is actively using creation and history and even the wrongs of man for his own glory. We see that. Again, remember, remember what the Jews thought the Messiah would look like and then how we are about ready, ready to see the portrayal of his servant. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 2 uh, expands on the shocking demeanor of uh, chapter 52, verse 14 in Isaiah, which says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. This is figurative speech intended to convey to us the unexpected nature of the servant's entire ministry. Not just, his, not just what we might see bodily, but his entire ministry. The way that God is set about delivering his elect is shocking. Deliverers are dominating, forceful, attractive people who by their personal magnetism draw people into themselves. Think of the comparison or the, or the uh, contrast between King Saul, for instance, how mighty and, and physically imposing he was, and the ruddy, the, the ruddy boy king, David. This man does not fit the picture at all of what we would say, of what they were expecting, nor might he be the figure that we might conceive if we were to, to author the narrative of the redemption of man. Instead of bursting on the scene as a mighty oak, this man appears as a sprout, that unwanted shoot that springs up from a root. Verse 3 goes on, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The Hebrew word for despised does not have the severity um, of emotional connotation that the English word does. It means to consider something or someone to be worthless. The people will dismiss and reject him as well as his message as worthless, not worth the effort, not even to consider it. Not only does he lack any particularly attractive features to draw us to him, but he is full of his own problems. He is a man of pain and sickness. How can he possibly deliver us from our problems? He's not one of the winners. We would count him among the losers. And it's a fundamental principle or tenet within ourselves that losers do not deliver losers. Don't we often find another person's illness embarrassing or at least discomforting? When someone is going through trial or grief that um, we find ourselves being extremely uncomfortable. 
we can do nothing tangible to fix those in our midst that are ill or in some way alleviate their suffering, we may often, as Isaiah said, hide our faces from them. Roll up on any intersection in Centralia, and there's probably a pretty downcast and deplorable appearing person sitting there holding a cardboard sign asking for a handout. And how much effort, how much, how much do we work to look natural in avoiding any eye contact with that individual? Was the servant himself literally a sick man? Not likely. The point is that because he does not fit the stereotype of the strong arm of the Lord, he will be treated as though he were ill. In John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says this, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, as I am moving towards the last portion of this message, I want to hone in on verses 4 and 5. And if you're attentive, what, what we're hearing here is we're hearing the setup and the fulfillment of the gospel. That this, in fact, this Advent message is actually a gospel message this morning. Verse 4 starts, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The sufferings of the servant were not his own fault, as people of his day may have thought, brought on by himself, but were in fact a result of our sins and resulted in our healing. It's here that the issue of substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary suffering of the servant, reveals the capacity of Jesus Christ, this so-called loser, to deliver his people. While temporal punishment for sin is serious and ought not to be dismissed, it is by no means as serious as spiritual punishment, that being eternal alienation and separation from God. It is only through satisfaction that fellowship between humans and God is possible, but can a sheep die for a man or can a goat die for a woman? Hear what the prophet Isaiah says in Micah chapter 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So in the, is the sacrificial system merely a, a, a metaphor? Well, no, it's not. Just as Micah captured from the Holy Spirit the understanding of the sacrifice, John the Baptist spoke for his contemporaries when he cried out, Behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A lamb cannot die in the place of a human who is destined to receive the wages of sin, but a perfect human could. 
In fact, if that human is also God, he could die for the sins of the world. We see that in Hebrews 9 and elsewhere. And kind of to put some denouement, denouement in the gospel here, verses 10 and 11 in Isaiah 53 say this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What a humbling portion of scripture that is. The wrath of Almighty God towards sinners who repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ was satisfied by the vicarious substitution of the Lamb of God. This propitiation that Christ accomplished, the satisfaction of the wrath of God towards us as sinners. Carnal man typically makes light of sin, thinking of them as faults or shortcomings to explain any mistakes in our life. All you got to do is tune into a channel that, that's uh, reporting political news or anything else out there in the world. Well, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry I got caught. But let me tell you plainly, God will have none of it. The refusal of rebellious man to bow to the law of God and his rule the insistence of man to draw upon his own moral codes, pandering to his own sinful lusts, are not faults, shortcomings, or mistakes. They are sin against a holy, righteous, sovereign creator God that demand justice. And we know the wages of sin is death, which is the, actually the first prophetic utterance in the Holy Scripture. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place and fully, impeccably fulfill the law of God, we will uncontrollably steer our lives straight into the jaws of an eternal hell of which there is no escape, no escape and no reprieve. Quite a funeral dirge. But just as Paul delivers us in Romans chapter 8, after, after seven chapters of, of the funeral dirge, if you will, the indictment of mankind and the, and the um, uh, illumination that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we come upon in Romans chapter 8, which says, Therefore, therefore now there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. But praise be to God that someone has been found. Someone has been deemed worthy. Someone has been deemed impeccable, sinless, spotless to take our place. Someone has taken on himself our sin and unrighteousness, has borne the grief and punishment of our very sin, and we have been given the keys to the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So as we spend our remaining days of this Advent season, leading up to the celebration of the sacred birth of our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, let us dwell on the majestic story of redemption authored by the triune God to save a hapless lot of souls lost in sin. Allow me to close with the following very familiar lyric. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live, I live. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Savior, protect us from the grasp of the world as this Advent season progresses. Let us completely submerge ourselves in the wonder and beauty of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We bow down at the name of Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and the people of God join in saying, Amen. It says in Psalm 100, verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Because God created you, he knows better than you what you need. God made you to have a body and a soul. And therefore, when you were baptized, God washed your body with water, and he also washed your soul by his Holy Spirit. Similarly, at the Lord's table, God gives to your body bread and wine, and he gives to your soul his very self. God knows exactly what you need, and what he offers is free to all who will receive him by faith. As he declares in Revelation 22, verse 17, Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So come and dine with the God who made you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Uh, The charge is this. We invite you all to feast uh, with us, and I'm going to pray now for the food, and then I will uh, offer the benediction. Father, we thank you for this body of believers. We thank you for the fellowship that we have together in you. We ask that you would bless uh, the food that we partake of together now in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.